LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part 3 with Jason Horsley discussing his book Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. If you haven't already, it's strongly recommended that you listen to the previous segments first. Links can be found on this interview page at LegalizeFreedom.com or if you're listening on YouTube in the program information below. The interview resumes as we discuss how conspiracy theories affect the way we think about conspiracy theories. Did I tell you previously that I I worked with David Icke for about a year on a a casual freelance basis? Did I mention that before? I don't think you did. I'd like to hear about that. Well, there's a scene towards the end of the... I'm not sure if it's in the remake of the film, but in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right at the end, and there's a guy who's running off He's found, you know, the, the, about the conspiracy and what's going on in his society, and he's mm. running off in a mad panic to tell anyone who'll listen. And he finds himself in the middle of a, a freeway uh, with all these commuters and stuff driving past, and he's please listen, please listen to me. It's them, you know, it's been them all along. They're, yeah. they, you know, they live, yeah. you know, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So that's how uh, David Icke came across at first. And, mm. of course, I'm not sure where we're up to these days, but in recent years, he's certainly had a lot more attention. You may, I don't know if you ever saw that documentary that I think Channel 4 made it. It was called David Icke, Was He Right? But a lot of the people that I met in his circle, shall we say, you're absolutely right. They had this sort of gestalt download of, of quote-unquote information and knowledge, didn't know what to do with it, and actually did become, it did seem to be very disempowering. So not saying that they were necessarily empowered before, but even if David's intentions are benevolent, for many people, they, they giving them this information in sort of 9, 10, 11-hour presentations didn't seem to have an empowering effect. It's simply people disappeared down a kind of rabbit hole about, oh, the cabal, you know, the elites, the Illuminati, and on and on. And then it became almost like Grassy Nolington in Viz Comic, who's the comedy conspiracy theorist. You know, conspiracies are everywhere, you know, and you can't function anymore because you're wondering if the cabal, you know, slip on a banana skin, it's the cabal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you can't, you're split, I think. You can probably still function. In most cases, these people probably carry on functioning normally. But their attention is much less, it was probably less and less on the everyday. Because as I said, they're either trying to find the conspiracy in the everyday, or they're just um, compartmentalizing, which I think is more common. And they're thinking about all the conspiracies that are going on. Uh, and ignoring what's going on in their everyday environment, because, oh, that's not relevant. 
you know, there's no evidence there. Actually, there is evidence for conspiracy in the everyday, but not in the sense that the Illuminati, you know, used psychotronic weaponry to put a banana peel on, on the pavement <laughs> kind of thing, right? It's obviously a lot more subtle than this. Um, it's in our own thoughts and our own emotional reactions and our own behaviors, the secret, you know, the story that our body's trying to tell, the trauma that's been put in us, the kind of cognitive, uh, habitual, um, the habitual cognitive patterns that we follow to try and understand and perceive the world. These are all evidence of, quote, the conspiracy, unquote. And so this, that's the, the dark irony of it is, is that, um, the, the very way we think about deep state social engineering programs, etc., uh, has been, um, influenced or compromised by these programs. And that's conspiracy theory in a nutshell. Like we're thinking about the problem in the way that the problem itself has created for us to think about it so we will never ever attain any kind of solution yeah it'll just go round and round like a dog chasing its tail so at the risk of kind of repeating a point from earlier these so-called stormers of heaven with their agenda or agendas do they really need the rest of us or do they just need us to just look elsewhere not pay attention right so could they just wipe out six billion people and then they have a much better situation well they certainly need slaves they need people to you know carry the things and build things and whatnot until they can get you know robo world up and running and even there they'd need human slaves to maintain the robots i presume um so so that's number one they need physical workers to keep society running um, including, you know, to build their secret enclaves in Dubai or wherever well, Dubai is not secret, but maybe there's a breakaway civilization like Alex Jones claims. They, t- they certainly need workers. This is something I read about recently about the superhero movies that all these superheroes like Batman and Black Panther and so on, they have these massive technological power bases and you never see the workers. Uh, like you don't see the workers on the Death Star. <laughs> building the new Death Star, right? Uh, all of whom got vaporized at the end of that movie. But anyway, um, you don't see that. You don't see how much human power is needed just, just to maintain the Dark Empire. Um, so that's number one. That's a very obvious thing. The other thing is much more subtle, which is, and you mentioned it, attention. The direction of attention. Like if you think of the magician... He's directing our attention away from what he's doing towards some trick so that we won't see the trick. But then he does need us to see the result of the trick, right? He's not just directing our attention away from what he's doing. He then has to bring it back to what he's done so that we'll be spellbound, right? So the magician does need an audience. I mean, obviously, he wouldn't have it. There'd be no point in doing tricks if he didn't have an audience. Um, and I think there's something in that. I do think that stage magic is very similar to, you know, occultism. There's a reason why it's one word for these two different things, in that it is about managing perception, harvesting and directing attention. And I think that the mysterious X-factor is is that there's energy in attention. 
but somehow attention, um, you know, where attention goes, energy follows. And if you think about a celebrity, for example, they have to get your attention and hold it, or politicians. But it's not just the attention, they want your money and your love. And so, I suppose the simple answer is, you know, who would the, if the elite didn't have anyone to rule over and control and manipulate, what would make them the elite? They'd just be a bunch of, you know, people with no one to lord it over. They'd end up devouring themselves, presumably. I imagine. I mean, I, I, I don't, I think it's an impossible hypothesis or a proposition that there's something in the nature of elitism and, and, and control and power that requires uh, subjects or victims. Just as as in abuse, you need a victim. You can't be an abuser or a predator if you don't have prey. That's getting very basic, isn't it? We're talking about predators and their prey. And in that analogy, I think that what the predators prey on is life force, mm-hmm. uh, energy, and that, and that that uh, attention is a part of our awareness is central to that. So yeah, they're constantly manipulating our awareness and att- attention, and, but it's not just so that we don't see what they're doing. They also need us to see what they're doing. In Gladiator, uh, I'm trying to remember the characters' names. Like this is Gladiator the movie, of course. It's funny how often I come back to this all the time. I'm always making pop culture references, and there may be something deeper behind that, but it, it happens a lot. It's just amazing how much, how many ideas and how much information there is contained in even the most banal uh, popular culture. Uh, yeah. But I thought Gladiator was pretty good. But is it the the, uh, the outgoing emperor? I think at the early part of the film. When there's like, who's going to succeed him? And he's talking to Maximus, who's the military leader. I want you to take over. It must not be my son or whatever, because he is corrupt and weak. And Maximus is like, oh no, no, this is this is not for me. He says, because you do not want it, want this power. It's why it must be you, you know, because you don't want it. And it occurs to me that the true power is kind of not wanting power. Or maybe perhaps just wanting power over yourself, which is kind of how I've characterized it. And people I've talked about power in the past. I said I've never wanted power over anybody other than myself. And there does seem, and this ties back to the sort of people you made this comment um, earlier on about the sort of people who seek power and what, what's their story, what's their background, you know, what, what was their sense of powerlessness that's led to this this craving? Yeah, well, I think. It- you have to reduce it to the people who attain power, because if you're going to talk about the people who seek power, then I would say that's everybody in the mm. Western world. Now, you may qualify that, as you did, um, to just power over yourself, but I'm not sure how you would separate power over yourself from power over others. I mean, I understand your point. You're talking about self-mastery mm. in terms of being able to control one's own vices or whatever and not succumb to things and whatnot, but I do think that's the seed or the kernel of, that's still the will to power, trying to control one's own emotions, trying to be perfect, trying to be pure, trying to be good. I think all those things are also sourced in in a formative childhood imprint, uh, knowledge of good and evil, right? That where we got punished if we were bad and rewarded if we were good, but it was also confusing that we just couldn't figure out what we were supposed to do. So we internalized all that and we ended up growing up like St. Paul, you know, the evil that I, I don't want to do, I do, and the good that I want to do, I can't do. 
that that's how it is for all of us um to one degree or another and so we are seeking relief at the very least and we correlate power with relief even if as you you know you put it we reduce it to power of oneself that's the thin end of the wedge now i would say that m- most if not all people whether they're conscious of it or not they do want power over others they do they want people to like them they want people to validate them we all do we need it like a deep psychological level we need it and so the culture has imbued us with this idea that in order to get validated in order to be happy pursuit of happiness we have to attain things in the world and that's power you think about it being popular being rich being successful being talented even being good these are all they've all somehow got conflated with power or they've all been compromised or shackled to to the will to power or what needs to call the will to power so then you got to look at yeah the people who actually attain power and what makes them different and it's coming back to this this idea that only the powerful in today's world not only the powerful but the powerful in today's world are only powerful because they have such a profound drive for power that they'll do anything to get it in other words they have no moral compass to prevent them or at least their moral compass takes a back seat you know they will, they know how to put it on hold i'm not sure if anyone is like hannibal lecter who's just doesn't have any kind of com- conscious conscience whatsoever I suppose that would be the antichrist if such existed and i don't think he would be like hannibal lecter either so i think we have these fantasies about these monstrous sociopaths and even i think you know someone like jimmy savile or harvey weinstein or even kevin spacey if you think about the films he characters he played the the sociopaths that were allowed to identify by the culture they're all kind of yeah well i kind of knew that already he obviously seemed like a creep i think it would be a lot more I know it would be a lot more shocking if we were to discover that Keanu Reeves or even George Clooney was committing horrific acts because it would really throw a spanner in the works of our uh, belief that we know how to tell a sociopath from a normal person but I think by definition we don't right? by definition of a sociopath or part of it is they know how to use charisma um and that's because their drive to power is so profound that they will assume any kind of form they have to to get it but also I mean more deeply that drive to power is sourced in the psychic fragmentation that generated a charisma and that allows a person of that kind to to switch you know Jekyll and Hyde they can switch from super loving and kind and compassionate and wise uh Leonard Cohen is coming to my mind but listeners won't understand that analogy but anyway I think there's evidence that Leonard Cohen was this kind of person um and, but and then switched from that to being a monstrous you know vicious abusive personality when they don't get their way and there are celebrities that this is known about like Barbara Streisand I've done a lot of reading about she's kind of known to be a monstrous person although perhaps not widely because you know the spin has been good enough that she's hugely admired but mm. it's no secret that she's a sociopathic type but i think there's many that it is a secret with and uh the 
are more prevalent, and that allows us to maintain this illusion that it's possible to attain power just through being talented and um, diligent, you know, working really hard. Well, in this idea of uh, an agenda or agendas being rooted in what you alluded to earlier, you know, this quest for oneness or wholeness, there does seem to be something genuine in that, even if some of the drives pursuing it are, are damaging or misguided. You know, this death of God and the birth of man to become God, a sort of a, a return home, a return to this wholeness. That's something I think a lot of people can identify with, and it, it finds correspondence in all sorts of um, spiritual traditions, you know, that kind of in terms of like, you know, why are we here? You know, what is life? And that, uh, you know, each one of us is a little part of the divine and that we're seeking that uh, realization again, you know, that, that there is just one universal being and we're all a little part of it. That idea resonates strongly with me. It's something that I've felt and again found a lot of other people feel and think the same way and I've tried to express it in different ways. Uh, and it's been, it's not a new idea at all. It's at the root, say, of so many, so many things. It may seem very distant from a lot mm. of our, our lives today and our, our realities. But so in, in all of this, what the scientists at uh, CERN might be driven by or what occult seekers might be driven by or what, um, some psychopaths in, in business and politics, what may be un- underlying their behaviors, even underlying their own potential trauma or powerlessness is, is something that is kind of meaningful and real. There are two ways of looking at it. Yeah. One could say that, that we're all unconsciously driven to heal, to become whole, because that's the, what the life force wants. It's trying to restore itself. It's trying, and, you know, the soul or the psyche is trying to land in the body, trying to be married to the body to, for that divine union to occur. That, that is kind of innate in everything we do, however unconscious. Um, so you could say yeah, all of these misguided attempts, at the deepest level, they are an attempt to return to the truth. But one could also say that what the, the real, the core of what these drives are is to prevent that from happening, to reify the individual self and make it sovereign, Luciferian, you know, autonomous, independent entity that can rule in the hell of its own isolation from from God, from the greater humanity and from the universe. That would seem to be the drive in a nutshell. And this can only happen through disembodiment because as bodies, we are all connected, I think. I think that this is this is where it gets problematic when we talk about the idea of being all one that's a mental idea and it will never be true mentally because the mind itself is the means by which we experience the illusion of being separate a from the body and b therefore from humanity or the the earth or nature and c from god it's a mental construct but in the body we can never be separate because you know bodies are part of nature uh, and nature is part is the universe and nature is well, well, how do we want to put that? I don't want to, you know, if I use words, then I'm falling into the very trap I'm trying to to, to, to lay out here, or expose, rather, um, which is that at a bodily level, therefore at a soul level, we're already one. 
with each other and with God, because we can't ever not be, and God could never die. It's only this idea, the mind self that has got so disconnected from the body and therefore from reality, that it's lost a sense of God, and it, it can no longer believe in God. Hence, you've got Nietzsche's idea that God is dead. But that's just an idea. It's a philosophical premise that, yeah, it's very central to our culture and all the rest of it, so it's meaningful at one level. But at another, another level, it's entirely meaningless, as is the quest for wholeness, I think. This is the weird paradox. This is that, in a certain sense, the quest for wholeness is the only thing that prevents us from being whole. But that's insofar as the, it's, it's paradoxical, because the quest for wholeness is the evidence that we're, we're not whole. Like there's a part of us that isn't home and it's trying to get home. But, that part um, is doing it, as you say, in all the wrong ways. So that part just has to surrender and give up and trust that the shepherd will find it. It's the lost sheep. Have faith. And uh, and then it's over. You know, It's got nothing to do. It just has to wait. And then, the, you know, there's a natural order of things that, that as long as we cease, or the moment we cease preventing that natural order from being, or the moment we we cease um, preventing our awareness from being suffused into that natural order of things, then it then it happens. It's the journey of zero distance. So, um, so I think that what you're zeroing in on there is, I mean, it's obviously a very, it's a very key thing because yeah you could say well there's a true yearning behind all these pathological drives and you could say there's a truth behind all these distorted philosophies and beliefs but on the other hand um, that truth isn't a mental one it's not a conceptual one it's not an idea it's a lived reality and until we're experiencing it we we can't talk about it we can but we won't be talking about it it's the Tao, you know, the Tao that's named isn't the Tao. So if we're talking about the idea of being one, we're not talking about being one. We're just talking about the idea, and that's going to keep us out of it more than it's going to lead us back into it. So that, and that's very much what part two of Prisoner of Infinity is laying out, is all these counterfeit narratives that seem to correspond with a possible, a possible true lived reality, as in a a reality that it is possible for us to live and experience. They, they're, they're, they're narratives that correspond, but they're not testimonials. They're not people who've experienced it, who are creating, who generating the narratives. They're either people who genuinely want to experience it and so have deluded themselves into thinking they have, or they're people who have cynically given up on ever having getting to experience it, and so they have uh, malevolently created counterfeit versions to trick people and lure them into it so they can have company in hell so they can rule in hell because to rule in hell you need subjects to rule over so that's something very different that's what that's what generates the prisoners of infinity either we do it to ourselves through delusion or we get lured into it and it's a bit of both and by by others who have I guess to come to an even greater delusion, which is that God is dead, there's no meaning or truth in the universe, so they just worship themselves and then they want 
to trick others into worshipping them. Um, you know, they want to fill the void that's created by the death of God. There's a, there's a lot of thoughts there. Uh, hopefully they make a coherent picture. I think the one I wanted to reiterate at the end is, is there's a world of difference. There's an abyss, really, between a, a concept or an idea about something and the lived reality of it. And we know that about a nail or, or an apple or a wife or a partner or something. The idea doesn't satisfy. And yet somehow, when it comes to the ultimate reality of God, we don't acknowledge that. We somehow think the concept is enough as opposed to the lived reality. I, I guess because at some level we have, you know, we do feel that God is dead. We've given up on this idea that God is a lived reality that we can be saved by. I'm ending on a very Christian note there, but I do think there's, there's, there's a profound correspondence between the Christian configurations and, and the reality, which is sort of contradicting what I'm saying. I'm not saying that being a Christian is the answer because that can risk then again mistaking the dogma or the doctrine for the lived reality. But just insofar as there's that correspondence between our ultimate oneness of being, as you say, being attainable to us only through through faith and surrender to it, rather than using the will to try and attain it, because and and it's there, you know, if we're just honest about it. If if there is ultimate oneness of being which corresponds with, you know, the word God, then we're already it, by definition. God is us, even if we, you know, we're desperately trying to have that experience. Well, we don't have to, you know. Why do we have to? Because if that's the underlying reality of being, why why should we need our minds to experience it? We, we really don't, and they never will. But our bodies are, they are actually in, in the flow of that experience all, all of the time. I'm reminded of the phrase, the map is not the territory. Yeah. I'm just going to reminisce about an experience I had, and you can like, respond to it in any way you want. A few years ago, I had a a sort of past life hypnosis regression session. One of the things that came to me during that was about why I was here, or why we're here, but it, obviously it was in, in that context, it was about me as some kind of individual, you know, separate from you or anyone listening to this. And the phrase was, again, this was sparked by something you said a few moments ago, watch and wait. That was what I was to do, not to scramble around, not to seek to pursue, to get, to gain, uh, to chase, to master. It was watch and wait. That was a very strong thought that, uh, that obviously when I was in that state, that, that seemed to be to be somehow very important. Mm. Well, it was a, a truth. I'm trying to remember the exact word. I made a video for my, my niece when she turned 18. It was 18 things that I wish someone had told me when I was 18. But anyway, one of them, points they were called, one of them was all you have to do is show up and pay attention. So I thought I would add that because the watching and waiting is, is very passive. And, and I do believe there is an active element, which is this show up. That we need to show up in every given moment. We need to, to, there is an element of will that isn't, <laughs> you know, isn't mind based and isn't power driven, I think, which is a willingness to be present. And so I think life is constantly, 
opening doors for us or or presenting opportunities for us. Just as now we're having this conversation, you say something, and then there's a pause, and I know that I'm supposed to say something. I have to show up, but be paying attention also, paying attention to what I'm saying and what you're saying. And but it's still, I mean, it's, it it does strip things to almost nothing. Just show up, and then, as you say, watch and wait. Yes. Well, it's a, a popular idea in alternative history and research circles, you know, that there was some kind of antediluvian disaster that befell humanity, encapsulated in the idea of the fall of mankind, and that this sort of early trauma, unintegrated, unresolved, is behind all of human history and experience and explains a lot of our kind of dissatisfaction and dysfunction today. This is encapsulated in ideas, you know, uh, like Atlantis, for example, or some kind of planetary disaster that almost wiped out the species. And I've read a lot around that over the years. But reading your work, I've begun to ponder, you know, is there is that essentially possible? But is it, are we perhaps, I'm not saying that any of these physical events haven't occurred. Who can say? That's an open question at the minute. But is there some kind of element of this to do with the human psyche, the collective consciousness, collective unconsciousness, whatever, you know, is there a a mental or spiritual dimension? I don't even know the right words to use, but is there perhaps something to this that is subtly or perhaps even profoundly different from the avenues of paths of exploration that have previously gone down with this? Mm. Well, I think I do speculate a bit about it in the book, but that's all it is, speculation. It's definitely not my area of interest or expertise, but I think, I mean, I think where I go with that is that I think there is a case to be made, or at least I think it's worth, it's a model that's workable, that humanity has evolved, the consciousness of humanity has progressed into an increasingly individuated state. So what we now think of as the unconscious, juxtaposed with the ego, I think it may have been very different in the past. Uh, I do write about this in Prison Infinity, don't I, referencing um, Julian James's bicameral mind and his theory that I think probably even just a few thousand years ago, but certainly anyway, in you know, previous period in humanity's history, uh, human beings were a much less conscious of themselves as individual beings, i.e. much less self-aware, and B, as a result, or co- corresponding with that, experiencing themselves much more as a collective. So telepathically connected is how we would look at it now from an ego's point of view. But actually, it would be back to my point about bodies all being part of a continuum of nature, just as, you know, cats all partake of a collective cat soul. It's quite platonic, isn't it? Uh, so human beings also, but that it's only relatively recently that I think that we've individuated in quotes, not perhaps in a true Jungian sense of becoming autonomous, but in the sense of experiencing ourselves as isolate and separate, um, I think that that's a relatively recent development, and that it, I'm not quite sure how how I would argue this historically, but there's some sort of correspondence there with uh, hardship, the way in which that isolated identity self developed um, corresponded with a particular period of hardship. So 
that the because I mean the the trauma model that I lay out in Prisoner Infinity is is that the ego identity or the false identity is generated through trauma as it as a defense against that. So I think that there's probably a way to extrapolate that to the whole of humanity that we have developed these isolated ego identities selves um, as a response to to trauma, but, but that is both individual in terms of our individual lives, which go back to our childhood, but also collectively. But some sort of collective tra- trauma generational, <laughs> what's the word there, trauma genetic experience has been the way in which human beings have, have emerged from this more collective or group mind or group soul experience of ourselves into these more individual, individuated selves. And that this is some sort of journey of consciousness that we're on currently that is leading to some kind of endpoint. I think that's where we've got these ideas of historical time having a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is in the Bible, obviously. You've got Garden of Eden, and then you've got the middle bit, <laughs> and then you've got the apocalypse at the end. Um, I think that that's mapping a journey of individual, of human consciousness from a collective paradise to this individuated self that's that's trying to obey God and trying to find God and all the rest of it, but failing to the wrath of God, the the day of judgment and the revelation, where we then rediscover ourselves as as one collective through union with Christ. So apparently, there's some sort of evolution there whereby the togetherness we enter into or the oneness at the end of this traumatic individuatory journey is more complete than the one that we we started in but i don't know i think again the individual life one could see that as we talked about initially that if a person um experiences trauma but then heals the trauma they do um perhaps have a kind of wisdom and depth that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't undergone the trauma. So I think there is something basic about being united, child in the womb, separating traumatically, and then somehow reuniting, not with the mother, of course, but with one's own partner, creating another life through union. There seems to be something that is cyclical there that can occur in the human psyche and in the human life that perhaps has occurred for humanity at large. Well, Jason, we're going to leave that question hanging for the time being. Today we've been discussing your book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. We're going to return to this in a third part where we will be dealing with transhumanism and space exploration and what the future might hold, amongst other things. In the meantime, Prisoner of Infinity and indeed your other books are widely available. Before we sign off, however, just share with listeners details of your website. And as you mentioned um, at the top of the show, you also do a podcast of your own. Yeah, my website is auticulture.com. That's A-U-T-I, culture. And I have a weekly podcast called The Liminalist, the podcast between where I talk to all kinds of different people, including readers and listeners. So um, I, I welcome any kind of feedback or correspondence via my website. Always uh, happy to talk to people who are interested in what I'm doing. Splendid. Well, Jason, once again, thank you so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you, Greg. <laughs>